This is Kevin. And this is Ron. And this episode of Your Valuable Home is brought to you by Provia. Provia, a faith-based company that makes entry doors, storm doors, patio doors, vinyl and wood-clad vinyl windows, vinyl siding, manufactured stone, and metal roofing, all of incomparable quality. Welcome to Your Valuable Home, the weekly podcast for listeners who believe that residential real estate is the way to build wealth. Hi, I'm Kevin Kennedy, a working contractor and host of Your Valuable Home. Your Valuable Home is for homeowners and investors alike who want to acquire and improve real estate based upon educated decisions. And I'm Ron Milk, Your Valuable Home producer and co-host. Our weekly one-hour podcast is not about doing it yourself. It's about hiring the right contractor to do the right job at the right price. And it's not about flipping. It's about buying and holding to build wealth. Homeowners and investors who strive to create wealth and financial freedom with real estate and avoid costly home improvement mistakes. Your valuable home is for you. The Project Replay made redoing our kitchen and bath trouble-free. Your horror stories have kept us from hiring the wrong contractors. The college segments have taught us how to keep toxins out of our home, what to look for in replacement windows, how to borrow sensibly against home equity, and more. College teaches investors like me how to freshen up my rentals without spending a fortune. Their suggestions are great for ROI. It's time for Your Valuable Home. This was presented to me maybe about three to four weeks ago. It's going to lead into a horror story, but it has a good happy ending to it. We got involved, and we're going to be giving him a price for an in-law suite, something we have similar to our house. I'll tell you, Ron, more and more people, in the last three years, I've been doing more of these in-law suites. You basically have an in-laws, family, kids are moving back, and they're putting additions on because they want the family you know, to be there. You talking to Jessica Louts, it seems to be a trend. So if it's happening, that's one of the reasons why probably we're so busy. But we do have another gentleman come on. Frank wants to talk about his in-law suite that he's going to be putting on for his family. Say, Frank, thanks for uh, doing this and coming on the show of Your Valuable Home to talk about your in-law suite. Oh, thanks, Kevin. So I always ask the first question, why are you doing it? Basically, my parents were getting older. They had a house. They're not really the type of people who want to go into like a senior living community or anything like that. So we decided that, you know, hey, it's a good idea. Let's sell the house. Prices are up. We can use that money and we could build an in-law suite this way. They're closer to home. We get to spend, uh, you know, a couple more good years with them or more, hopefully. That's the process we decided, you know. Yeah, it works. It works for a lot of people. It's a more affordable way of doing things. It doesn't have to be super elaborate, but it's a way of doing it where you're making it better for in the long run because it's not so much the building of the house, it's the care that you're giving now that you have them on site. We're keeping an eye on our in-laws now. So it's not that they're in bad health or anything, but it's just what's the extra cost you have to worry about. So you're thinking of the addition, you met with an architect and he kind of guides you in the way of doing this to be the best economical way of doing things. Yeah, my mom just isn't the type of person who wanted the senior community. So we decided like, we, okay, we're going to hire somebody but you know i work my wife works we barely have any time in our schedule to get anything done and i just really wanted to get a contractor in who was just gonna take this job get the architect set up get a design you know his design team set up design this thing like soup the nuts you know get everything done get the permittings i didn't really want to have too much involvement in doing all that stuff because i don't have time i really don't know what i'm doing <laughs> you know <laughs> that's even a better reason not to do it you wouldn't believe how many people think they can do it and they get in there and they, they're well over the head in doing this i know frank works from cars. You know, I don't tell people, hey, I'm going to switch your engine out. And I did sleep at a Holiday Inn Express, but I'm going to give it a shot. Well, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm sure I could watch it on YouTube, but you'll laugh at me going, really, you're going to try this? <laughs> oh, of yeah. course, today it's impossible. There are so many moving parts. And once a domino falls out of place, 
the project takes forever. And that's one of the reasons why we're so busy because we're done quickly. So we were over there a couple days ago and I had my mason over there to talk about the cement. We're seeing it on site. And we talked about, I said, when I got the last edition done back in July and August, we had Joanne and Chuck on and Joanne was the mom moved in. I said, when the foundation is laid and that slab is poured, that in complete edition from when I start framing to having the entire house sided, the roof on it, the complete insides finished, plus the existing part of the house. It wasn't a super big addition, but it was done in four and a half weeks. I promised him. And Ron, as you remember, recalling the show, I was done in four and a half weeks. So if you drag out a job, it doesn't work out for the homeowner. Number one, they're going to be upset because it's taken six months. Right. And it's going to cost more money. So if you want to give a very good price from the beginning, you have to be able to take that risk and do a job that's going to find in a good, reasonable time. Because if it takes six months, think about it. How much you paying subs to keep going out there to do work on this project? So you're not going to make as much. So what they do is they give this ridiculous pricing because they know they can cover it. And they don't really care because it's all subs. So it's not really coming out of their pocket per se. But when that job's still going on, the work paying a, a supervisor or a GC to look at the project and do quality control, it does add up. And basically, it's the homeowner's going to be paying for it or the contractor could lose money in the end because it's taking so long. So that's why we come in. We do it quickly because, number one, homeowners love it. Number two, I'm not in, really invading in their house too much because if you're in and out quickly and you, if you do a project, especially when it comes to an addition, we don't rip inside the house right away. We're going to get all the exterior parts and the addition done because once you break inside a house, it disrupts the family lifestyle. And you want to minimize all that. And that's something we specialize. But right here, here's the killer part that I always tell people, Dave and I are doing the work. And with us doing the work, we're not sitting on subs to come in like any other company. That's how we get it done so quickly. And that's what you really need to do when you're hiring a company. Is that, look, I'm not trying to bash just salesmen at sub companies, but if you don't start from the beginning and hire the right contractor, it's going to be a nightmare for you. As we've seen many, many times. Uh, right. They promise you one thing. Hey, our start tomorrow, they'll get a deposit, maybe get a little bit of work done. Well, my sub's not coming in for six months and this night guy's not coming in for eight weeks. And by the time that whole thing adds up, you could wait for the better contractor a few months from now for him to start and get it done better anyway. So that's the whole thing. You've got to really know when you're hiring a contractor. And what we'll do is we'll have him on as we go step by step so he can get an understanding of what he's going through to educate our listeners if they're going to be doing an in-law suite or some kind of addition that they hire the right contractor because they've got to ask the right questions and once you do that, you'll understand as a homeowner that hiring that right contractor and asking the questions to make sure it's on that contract is going to make your job go a lot easier. So let's take a little break and we'll jump right into it. Kev, the replay we just talked about turned into a bit of a horror story too, didn't it? Yeah, and Frank's going to be on to tell his horror Frank's story. Frank's back? Frank's yeah. back? Okay, Frank. Talk to us. I mean, it's kind of all new to me. I never had any additions or anything like that. The, the whole process was just new to me. So um, I actually had one of my customers who I knew had worked for a company where they actually built houses. So I was like, you know, confident that like he went into business for himself probably about five years ago, said he could do the work himself. He branched out and, you know, he had come in. I was servicing his car and I said to him, hey, you know, you're kind of in at the right time here. I was just wondering, like, would you be interested in coming out and taking a look at the house? Can you do an in-law suite? And he said, yeah, yeah, sure. If you do all that. And I, you know, explained him the situation that like, I don't really want to have my hands on this as much because I don't know what I'm doing. You know, so we want it, everything. You get the permits, you have your architect, talk to my parents and, and us, but like, I really want you to handle everything. Everything sounded great. They, you know, they came out, they met with us. We got the plans. We did pay the architect, the structural plans, everything was paid for. And I kept asking him, Hey, like, can you give me some idea of what am I looking at to build this? And he, you know, he's hesitant, but he give me, you know, a price here price there. 
there, you know, and then it, it basically started out where like, oh, you know, you're probably looking at the structure being about 200 to two and a quarter. Okay, fine. That's, you know, depending on options. Okay, yeah, fine, fine, fine. Time just goes by. I'm constantly like texting him, calling him, hey, any idea on prices? Did you get together with your mason and with the roofer and this, that? Did you get prices? I'm getting the prices. I'm getting the prices. I'm getting the prices. More time would go on. In the meantime, my parents had sold their house. They're living with my sister now. So my sister's got them two there, which makes it hard. Time goes on. And then I'm like, did you get the permit? And it was like, well, we filed for the permit. The permit's not done yet. The permit's not done yet. Did you get the permit? The permit's not done yet. And then I actually had a minute and called the township and I found out that the permit had been done and had been approved. And it was like sitting on their desk for like almost a month. He was just giving me excuses, just kind of holding me off, holding me off. I don't know why he was doing that. And I actually just never even mentioned it to him because I was just like, it's just another headache I have to deal with because I'm already hearing it from like, you know, my parents, my parents are anxious to get this done and to, to move on with their lives. Their life's pretty miserable right now. Maybe he was so, watching YouTube videos on how to build an in-law suite, you know? <laughs> yeah. It keeps going on. And the whole process was like really weird. Like the guy who was supposed to be building it, his wife was a designer. She actually had called and asked my mom to meet her to pick out flooring and kitchen cabinets and stuff at the warehouse. You know, my mom's like, we don't even have an estimate, a price. We don't have a contract. We didn't sign anything. The only money that was transferred in the whole process, I gave him a $1,200 check just so he could hold that check to kind of get everything started. That was it. We don't even have, you know, an estimate for this thing. So we, you're looking at hardwood floors. I don't even know what this thing's going to cost to build a shell. Don't worry about it. We'll just leave that blank. <laughs> we'll fill that in until the job's done. I'm putting my Halloween decorations up and it's been a, a year and a half. And I'm, I'm finally like, look, I, I got to get this moving. When do you think you guys would be able to start? Oh, we would start by the spring. And I'm saying to myself, yeah, by the spring, that was last spring. So I finally get a phone call from him on a Friday night. And he's like, yeah, I'm really sorry. Putting all the numbers together. I got the prices back. And, you know, like this thing's coming out way higher than we had like originally anticipated. And I'm thinking like, okay, so how much higher? Like $50,000, $60,000? Like what's high? Here he comes in more than like basically double than what he's been saying over 400,000. I'm like, my house is only worth like maybe five, 550. I'm not putting $400,000 addition in my backyard. This is ridiculous. Like, you know, in a year and a half time, how can the number change from you doing this? You pretty much know what that number should be. I understand prices change in the market and everything like, you know, supplies, wood, everything changes, but how could you be so far off on this job? You know? So I just, I was like, yeah, we're just, we're not going to do it. We're getting other estimates. Frank, how big is it? Nine hundred and like 90 square feet. And I did originally have it also with a basement with Bilko doors, a walkout, which at this point now we're just for cost effectiveness and my parents, like I don't need the basement. But that's the thing here is we're going to educate you before we give you an understanding or just give you a price. So you understand what I'm pricing out. I mean, if you don't feel comfortable with the contractor from the beginning, that's the time to bail. How many times have we did horror stories where people are like, well, you know, let's, we're going to keep pushing through with this guy and let's see what happens. Every single time I had like talked to my wife or my parents, I was, and we were like, you know what? We're, we're going to call somebody else. It was almost like I, the guy was recording me or something because I'd immediately get like a text message or a phone call where he'd be like, oh, I just wanted to touch base with you. I'm supposed to have this guy come out and take a look at the property or this or that. And so we kind of kept the process going because he kind of kept stringing us along. Like I said before, like he didn't take money from us, but just the time. The money's the money. But when my parents are older, it was the time. I really wish like we had that time back. You know what I mean? So did he ever give you a written estimate? After I received that phone call where he priced the 
the job out like four and a quarter. He emailed us. The estimate came in about a week after that. So I said to him, just still send me the, the, the contract and the estimate because I just wanted to have it for my records anyway. I said, so just still send it out. So he took about like another week and it finally came through the email and he has texted me back and forth. Like, I just want to let you know, how, how are you doing? How are your parents? Um, you know, if there's anything that we, we can change to get the price lower, we can do that. And I'm like, you know, he knows the scenario with my parents. He knows what price range we wanted to stay in. So it was just like, well, if you came back at that price, it was just at that point, I'm just like, no, this is not going to happen. We're just not hiring you. Yeah, and I feel comfortable from the beginning. It's just been a nightmare for you. So you're, I mean, you're doing the right thing. And it was nice to see your wife kind of jabbing you a couple of times to call me prior to that. So I was getting a kick out of these two talking back and forth. She's like, you should have called them. You should have called them. Yeah, and- <laughs> well, yeah, she worked with your wife. So, you know, she was telling me, but then she was like, oh, you know, Kevin's like, you know, Kevin's really busy. And I'm like, yeah, well, I already talked to And then finally, she's like, we should have went with Kevin at first. I'm like, well, you told me he was busy. (laughs) You know, I'm like, now I'm saying, damn, I should have went with, uh, I should have called Kevin like two years ago. You know what I mean? Yeah, well, you would have been done by then. And that's the nice part about it with us. I'm sure, like I said, I gave you a bunch of just your neighbors that we've done in just recently. It was one of the ones I I was talking about. Mike was on the show. If you go back to our show previously, and I believe it was starting in August and September of 2023 on the Your Valuable Home podcast, you'll get to understand what we can do and how fast we can do it. But again, we're not taking your money. One real quick note of thought when you get pricing. Everybody thinks they know it. Every time I talk to homeowners and I say, hey, listen, you're in the state of Pennsylvania. I'm going to give you a price. And you don't ask a lot of questions. And if this guy's 400000 I'll be 100000 We sign contracts. You don't ask questions. And I can turn around after I sign the contract saying, eh, well, listen, we have some problems here. We did this, this, this. We're running into. And that's going to be another 300000 more you have to sign here. And I'm going to present it to you. And you have to pay it. People are like, you serious? I'm like, well, yeah, it's unethical. But by law, I can do it to you. So never go with that cheap price. You've got to understand what you're going to be shopping for. And on top of that, if you don't feel comfortable with the contractor from the beginning, you and I just said it, how many times, how many horror stories we did that uh, homeowners are just getting, let's push forward with it. So, uh, but yeah, we're in the process now of starting pricing for him and I'll break everything. See, I break everything down for him. I want homeowners knowing exactly where that money's going. And I'm not about nickel and diamonds, but that's why I said we've been the cheapest for what we do, because you got to understand I'm putting that stuff in there. So I don't give you these gotchas at the end of the job. If you don't ask, I mean, if you ask for something, I get it. But it's those gotchas that really upset people. And with Chuck, if you go back in July and August with Chuck, when we did before that. Well, Frank got his gotcha before he got it, even started the job. Right. So maybe this gotcha. $400,000 gotcha. <laughs> we'll give it to your wife that you made the right phone call. But I'll get those numbers. And we'll, as we go through the process, and if you have questions, just keep thinking. Of this, I'd like to bring you back on to talk about some of the things for our listeners to understand that what you're going through and what are the best advices on the positive note once we get you solved and get this place built. And then, of course, hard copies are always best for us. Trying to look at it. plans on a phone or plans on a, a laptop don't work out the best, but we can get an idea. So let me know when you can pick those plans up and I'll pick them right up. As I said, I'll make it easy for you. I see you later, guys. Thank you. And listen, stick with us. We are talking about a problem you have that you don't even know you have. And it's the danger lurking in dying trees, which are plentiful in our area, up and down the East Coast, Midwest, everywhere. So definitely listen to this. Listen to this twice, as a matter of fact, because your life could depend on it. All right, we'll be back back after we take a quick break. Hey, Kev, we've talked many times about the importance of curb appeal and the value quality products add to exterior home improvements. Provia fiberglass entry doors and vinyl replacement windows add that value. And for huge impact, curb appeal, and value, there's Provia vinyl and polypropylene siding. Yep, the super polymer formulation of Provia siding reflects heat and protects against UV rays and solar heat buildup for lasting color and value. Provia siding comes in traditional, insulated, and decorative profiles, all with the look and texture of real wood. 
People often stop and ask me about my Provia Cedar Max siding. I've actually gotten siding jobs that way. Okay, so how about colors and styles? My customers love the extensive palette of popular colors, including dark and bold hues. New colors for 2023 include Miss Gray, Harvest Red, and Pine. And Provia offers a wide variety of styles from clapboard to Dutch lap, board and batten, and new Harbor Mill shingle and shake siding. Harbor Mill is reminiscent of traditional rough sawn shingle and staggered hand-split cedar shake. Both profiles are modeled after genuine cedar pieces using highly accurate laser scanning to ensure all the detail and texture of real cedar wood grain. Harbor Mill siding was designed with the installer in mind, incorporating built-in features that aid in a more efficient, hassle-free installation. The lightweight rigid panels are easier to handle and include locks, guides, and marks for the installer. That makes for a quicker installation and beautiful curb appeal. Yup, and you can see it all and have the colors and styles work with Provia entry doors and vinyl replacement windows at Provia's fabulous website, provia.com backslash YVH. Check out Provia's design center on the website and experiment with their exterior home visualizer to see how all the different styles, colors of Provia doors, windows, siding, stone, and roofing work together. Once again, Provia delivers on its mission to serve by caring for details in ways others won't. Visualize the possibilities at Provia.com backslash YVH. Okay, Ron, it is time for the featured segment. I know you and I talked about this several times, an area that we live in, of course, of potential dangerous problems, and you're actually bringing it to attention now. So what do we got? The title you could put on this interview is The Danger Lurking in the Trees, because there is. It's a wake-up call to anyone in our area and other areas, too, around the country, up and down the East Coast, who's not aware of the large number of dead and dying trees out there. Fact is, falling trees can bring down electric lines, block roads, our local canal path, which right. I've ridden a thousand times on a bike, and crush homes. What's worse, falling trees can kill somebody. Bob McMullen is a well-known arborist and founder of Keystone Tree Experts in Doylestown, PA, which is in Bucks County, is here to help scope out the extent of the problem with dead and dying trees. And here to brief us on the absolute spider's web of legal issues involving trees is Gilbert High, an attorney and expert on municipal and tree law. Gil's firm, High & Schwartz, has offices in Norristown, PA and Doylestown, PA. Bob, now large numbers of dead trees throughout our area, a potential hazard for people out for a stroll on a bike ride or for motorists? No question about it. I've been doing this for a long time and I've never seen so many dead trees. However, to clarify what the vast majority of those dead trees are, they're ashes that have been killed by emerald ash borer. There are other trees out there that are dead and dying, which is just a part of the normal cycle of the way things happen. But there are some other disease problems that are coming along that also could be a problem of some consequence. But the number of dying trees is just incredible. It's monumental. It really is. It's a real problem. Definitely the major problem has been caused by the emerald ash borer killing off ash trees. Interesting history on uh, that particular insect and ash trees in general. If you had asked me 20 years ago, what was the toughest tree in the area? What tree could you build around, damage the roots, do all sorts of things to 
it to abuse the tree that would survive. By far, it was ash trees. They were the toughest tree we had. And all of a sudden, along comes this insect, a relatively small insect, and manages to basically kill all of them off that haven't been treated. So the number of ash trees in our area that have died is probably is 100% of those who haven't been treated. I also looked up just out of curiosity how far this has spread, the emerald ash borer. It started in Michigan in 2004 and Ontario, Canada, and has spread at this point to Kansas. The estimated number of trees that is killed is basically unknown, but it's in tens of millions. It's estimated that in the United States, there are 8.7 billion ash trees. So they've got a long way to go to continue their onslaught on ash trees. Ash is a very dry wood, extremely dry wood, and it breaks rather readily. After it dies, it's even more dry and will break even more readily than it does a, as a live tree. And what tends to happen is you don't get whole trees blowing over. In fact, there's less chance of that when the tree is dead and has no foliage on it because it doesn't act as a sail. But what it does do is break apart from the top down. So you have an ongoing menace. It's not one drop and that's the end of it. It's constantly dropping good sized limbs unless you get the tree taken down. Isn't there another culprit out there too, the spotted lanternfly? It's sort of come and gone as of right now. We have very few spotted lanternfly last year, whereas uh, three years ago, the number of calls that came in were just unbelievable with that problem. It taken a liking to various varieties of maple, one in particular. The biggest problem that it created wasn't killing trees because I really didn't see any trees that I could say, yeah, that was killed by spotted lanternfly. However, it does have a very serious effect for on wine growers loves grapes it will defoliate a grapevine needless to say is a major problem if you're trying to uh, produce wine it wound up being and more of a nuisance than anything else not that it was doing the plants any good but it wasn't affecting them to the point that it was killing them it was a major nuisance because uh, the insect would be in large quantities in certain areas. You're out for dinner and you're eating outside and it flies in your face and so on and so forth. So that has passed for now. Thank goodness. Yeah. Goodbye to the lanternfly. Yeah. My dog was eating them like Scooby snacks <laughs> when he was chasing them in the backyard. Another problem that has come along, and uh, most people would look at oak trees and, you know, they certainly have a reputation for being sturdy, strong trees. And they are. They're sturdy, strong. However, they have developed, it's a disease that's been present for about 25 years, but not a problem of any great consequence, known as bacterial leaf scorch. It's a bacterial disease, and it has come along and gotten worse and worse. Last two years, it's been particularly bad, and it is in the process of killing many, many oak trees. Doylestown, for instance, where I'm located in Bucks County, I would venture to say that 35% at least of the oaks in this area that are 20 inches or more in diameter are infected with bacterial leaf scorch. Unfortunately, coming down the pike is the problem after ash trees dying is oaks. There are two species of oaks, basically red oak and pin oak, which are the two most common ones that we have. The disease is fatal 
There are treatments, but all the treatments do is slow up the process, hopefully slow it up enough that they'll come up with a cure for it. Unlike the emerald ash borer, though, instead of this problem killing the tree within a couple, three years, this one takes probably eight or ten. So it's a much slower process. And unfortunately, the process is in the stages, uh, probably mid-stages of being a major, major problem. I don't know whether good news or bad news, but at least with the ashes, that all happened quickly and much quicker than everybody thought it would happen. But this one is definitely a slow process. Bob, this is Dale. Let me ask a question here about what happens to an ash tree after it has died. That tree is still standing, and we've seen so many around Bucks County and around Montgomery County as well. How long does it take for a tree that has been killed by the emerald ash board to become a hazard tree, that is to become in danger of falling? As far as the tree itself falling in its entirety or whatever is left of it. That's not apt to happen anytime soon. That could be years, many years after it dies. But what happens is the tree dies from the top down and the sides in. The nutrients in a tree go from the root system and then they're distributed. This is now a live tree. Distributed through to the top and to the extremities of the tree first. So when the tree dies, in this particular case, it's dying because the nutrients have been cut off by the insect. So the tree begins, and, and that because of the nutrients being cut off, the tree dies from the top down and the sides in. Those branches that die first are extremely prone to breakage, probably within two years after it dies. In the tree care industry, it's not recommended. In fact, it's considered completely unsafe to climb a dead ash tree. In other words, to manually climb a dead ash tree because the wood is so brittle. So that's what you're dealing with, this ongoing breakage that takes place. And it begins happening, like I say, very soon, certainly within two years after the tree dies. What might be the cost of taking down, say, 10 sizable ash trees on a property? And it's a, almost an impossible question to give an accurate answer to. Let me just give a very ballpark figure. First of all, on the basis that you should not be climbing these trees, you then have to resort to using heavy equipment. Cranes are what are normally used. Now, that's good news and bad news. But using a crane is much safer than climbing. In fact, climbing is just out and out dangerous. And the cost of the crane is significant. I mean, the rented or whatever if you if the company happens to own it but the cost of getting a crane on the job is significant the good news is that it's much quicker than doing it manually but in general the cost should somewhat even out between the way it used to be done and the way it's done now just to make a general observation you would certainly have to figure on a thousand dollars per tree we've done large trees that have been in the six and seven thousand dollar range you take a dead ash tree and put it between two houses and make access difficult and so on and so forth. It's just a very, very time-consuming process. If you've got young kids, wouldn't it just make a lot of sense to take them down? What's happening is that most of the ash trees 
that are around a home that endanger the home or danger children, adults using an area and a lawn area and so on. Those trees have been taken down. And in many cases, the expense has been just a brutal expense for some people. I mean, I we've seen places where unbeknownst to the people, they move in in the winter and it's their starter home and they don't know it. And they've got 10 dead ash trees. And then all of a sudden they find out in the spring that all these trees are dead. They got a $10,000 expense, which they can't afford, but they've got to do something about it. As you expand further away from the house, many of those ash trees that are dead, particularly ones that are in the woods, are being left there because of the huge expense involved. And secondly, in the woods, them breaking apart piece by piece is not a big deal. Just don't go in the woods when it's windy. Even more so, a wet snow will break these ash trees apart readily. So the answer to the question is, I think most of the trees that are endangering people or property, they've been taken down, but there's still thousands that you'll see this vast area of gray-colored stalks sticking up in the air. and They're all dead ash trees, but they don't endanger anything at this point. Is there another problem, too? Because I walk the canal that we have here, and we have a creek that runs through uh, Washington Crossing, where I am, and that is old trees whose roots are along creek beds and uh, canal banks and hillsides that are being exposed by severe weather. Is that a problem? This is a major problem that Gil will, I'm sure, get involved with speaking about this. There becomes a question in most of these cases as to who owns the tree and who's liable for that situation. You go along River Road in our area, which is the road, let's use the Pennsylvania side, along the Delaware River, and you look to the, let's say you're going up the river, you look to your left and you look at the embankment that's there, which I do all the time, and And uh, you see all these 80-foot, 85-foot oak trees and various other trees leaning at a precarious uh, angle out over the road. And it's like, this is not good. And we get a, a storm comes along particularly if it's after a lot of rain, a hurricane in particular. And all of a sudden, you've got these roads along the river that are closed for two, three weeks at a time while they try to clean up the mess. And if anybody is, you know, crossing at the time, it's, well, (laughs) we don't don't have to talk about that too much, but the disasters that have taken place over the years are incredible. Yeah, there have been uh, stories of people getting killed in uh, Bucks County and in Newby, Jersey by big trees, huge trees coming down. Let's get into the Giggle side of this. Gil, welcome to your valuable home. Well, thank you. Nice to be here. Who is responsible for a dead or dying tree near a property line? Well, of course, uh, the owner of the property and the owner of the property is the one where the the trunk of the tree is. So if the trunk of the tree is on your side of the property line, you're responsible for the dead or dying tree. Uh, and this is where we see most of the uh, argument, frankly, is that the person on the other side of the property line sees the tree is dead or dying and asks his neighbor take it down. And the neighbor has no desire at all to spend the kind of money Bob's talking about to take that tree out. And so they leave the tree there. And they they do that, and it causes a great deal of litigation because they're not required to do it unless you can prove it's a hazard tree. A hazard tree is one where, because the tree has decayed or deteriorated to a point where it is likely to fall, either 
naturally or in the midst of a storm and where there is property that can be damaged. So that would be a hazard tree. But as Bob has indicated, just because a tree is dead doesn't mean that the tree is a hazard tree because it can stand for years. And in litigation cases, you've got to prove to the court not only that the tree is dead, but that the tree has deteriorated to the point where its fall is imminent in a storm or even naturally. Boy, you sure don't want to go into court saying, well, you know, I'm a layperson and I, I know a dead tree, but I see a dead tree. That's not enough. You've got to have an arborist who has access to that tree and who can take a look either at the base of the tree or at the exterior of the tree and say, you know what, that tree has deteriorated to the point where it is a danger. Okay, so if you cross all the T's and dot all the I's and a tree is clearly a hazard tree and the owner refuses to do something, the tree falls, either destroys part of a neighbor's house or kills somebody, where's the liability line? If the person who owns the tree knows or should know that it is a hazard tree, then that person is responsible for that limb falling on the other person's property. And the role that lawyers play uh, is to take a dead tree that your client, who is the neighbor, wants to have removed, and you write a letter to the person and say, you know what? We think that's a dead tree. We think that that tree has also deteriorated to the point where it is a hazard, and we ask you to take that down. And if the neighbor doesn't do it, then the neighbor at least has been put on notice that this tree may be a danger. And if, in fact, the tree then does fall down, then that person can be charged with negligence. Aha. Uh-huh. So that person would bear the responsibility of it. Yes, but you got to put them on notice. Can an arborist deem a group of trees along a public walkway like that hazard trees? Well, that's a great question because in the situation you just described, there is a statute where if you own private property and you permit the public to walk along that property for recreational purposes and you don't charge them, you're not responsible if there is a dead tree and someone is injured by that tree. The statute says that you have to actually have an intent that someone will be injured before you can be held responsible. Even if you know that that tree is a hazard tree, the public walking along there cannot sue you if they are injured unless there is an intent to cause the injury. That statute is critical, frankly, to those who operate park, those who operate unimproved ground where people come. Perhaps what they're doing is snowboarding or something of that nature. You can't be held responsible just because you own the property. Where would the liability lie if somebody gets killed by one of those trees? That's a risk that you take if you are a member of the public going on somebody else's property, privately owned or municipal property. The statute applies to any property owner, but you have to be there for the purpose of recreation. We're not talking about a trespass. We're talking about opening up your property to people who want to walk along it for recreational purposes, such as the towpath, or if it's a public park, walking along a trail in a public park. You can't be held responsible absent gross negligence. The problem is that that there are so many trees and it is so expensive to examine them and to take them down if there's a danger that decisions made by the state legislature, you know, our society can't exist unless we give some protection to people who own property and 
provide it to others for recreational purposes. And so it's, it's a weighing of risks. It's a weighing of, okay, what are we going to do in this situation? And the legislature said, we are going to place the risk on the person who is recreating. We're not going to place it on the property owner. Is that unusual for Pennsylvania or is it the same in other states? I think that that's true in a number of other states, but you put your finger right on the point that liability with respect to trees many times is based on the law of the state in which you are located. So Delaware, for instance, might have an entirely different law than Pennsylvania. Someone listening to this in Delaware wants to know what the liability issues are regarding trees in their state. Who are they best put to check with? Well, of course, I'm a lawyer, so I would suggest they contact a lawyer. You have to access the statute to see whether there is a statute that has been enacted by the legislature to provide protection in this regard. And in Pennsylvania, the the statute is called the Recreational Use of Land Act. So perhaps in some other state, there may be a similar statute. How would all of this apply to common property in an HOA-controlled community? The homeowners association would be the owner of common ground, and that homeowners association is an entity that would be responsible for the care and maintenance of the trees on that particular property. If that property is a relatively open property with an occasional landscape tree, the obligation on the homeowners association is much greater to inspect the tree and to make it safe than it would be if the tree is growing in a woods there's not nearly the responsibility to 